Listener production. Hello, Tom Tilly back with you on the briefing after a little holiday. Hope you're doing well. On Monday night, Indigenous ABC journalist Dan Grant made this statement on Q&A. Sometimes we need to just take time out. Sometimes our souls are hurting. And so it is for me. Yeah, so this has been a pretty sad and an interesting story. Stan Grant announced last week that he was stepping down from that high-profile role at the ABC because he'd copped more and more intense racial abuse, particularly after his contribution to the ABC's coronation coverage, where he talked about the legacy of the Crown and what it meant to him and the trauma felt by Indigenous people. He came out and said that none of the ABC executives defended him, and that was part of the reason he was stepping down. So in this episode, we're going to go deep on the Stan Grant story. What has happened here? And we're going to understand a lot more about it um, with our own Rihanna Patrick. She's also a former ABC Indigenous journalist, and she walked away from a national radio program there. I've never felt like I've belonged in journalism. I've never felt that. And part of me doesn't actually want to. So Rihanna will give her insights on what Stan has been dealing with and also explain to Jan Fran about the pressure lots of Indigenous people face in the media and any big organisation. It is a really interesting conversation. First, here are today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, May 24. Convicted pedophile and entertainer Rolf Harris has died, aged 93, So Harris had been receiving 24-hour care for neck cancer and his family confirmed the news overnight, although his death certificate shows he actually died in London two weeks ago. So, of course, he was once considered one of Australia's biggest showbiz exports to the UK. But Harris was prosecuted in 2013 over the indecent assault of girls and young women between the 60s and 80s, and he got out of jail in 2017. Yeah, and the abuse was horrific. Um, As you said there, it went back to the 60s. -hmm. One of the victims was a childhood friend of his daughter. So he not only abused his position as an entertainer, but also as a parent, which is just disgusting. So thoughts go out to his victims on this day. Um, He was a huge success, though, in his career. I remember seeing him in the 90s. So to find out that he was a pedophile, I think, was a a bit of whiplash for a lot of people who grew up with him as part of their childhoods. I remember going to one of his shows in Orange at the local Civic Centre, and he did the wobble board and, you know, the three-legged thing and the whole lot. So just to such a uh, a complex, tragic uh, and interesting legacy. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I'm with you. My thoughts really go out to his victims. And in Victoria, uh, the Andrews government has handed down their budget and it includes a bit of a controversial new tax which is slated to pay back the COVID debt. All our kids will remember COVID, but I'm not going to ask them to pay for it. So there's a $31.5 billion COVID debt repayment plan. Uh, it's set to pay back some of that debt over the next 10 years. And it'll be paid primarily by big business and people with investment properties. So, Antoinette, you've been looking into how this works. Yeah. So, those who own more than one home, they'll have to pay at least $5,000 over the next 10 years. And it depends on the value of the property because the fee increases accordingly. And about 860,000 landowners are expected to be affected by this land tax change. Also, businesses with a national payroll of more than $10 million will be forced to pay extra payroll tax of uh, 0.5%, and that'll go up to 1% if their national payroll is more than $100 million. 
I think it's pretty pretty cleverly marketed, um, Tom, when Dan says our kids won't pay for COVID. And well, that's not true. Um, mm. We have a COVID debt nationally in states and territories, and it's going to be paid back by us for a long time in um, many, many ways. Mm. But I do think it's interesting and pretty clever to frame it as a, a big business load and not on our kids. Um, that and, and slugging investment property owners, um, especially at a time when so many people are struggling to pay rent or mortgage. So I don't think at the moment there's going to be a huge amount of public sympathy mm. that multiple property owners or big businesses are going to have to fork out a bit extra. Yeah, I'm, I more or less agree with that. I think it's you know cleverly targeted at people that probably can afford it. Um, but, you know, 860,000 landowners is a, is a lot of voters and a lot of people aspire to, you know, have just one investment property, which doesn't mean you're rich. It just means you're, you're trying to get ahead. And it, and it could sort of help build this narrative that Dan Andrews, you know, not only made big mistakes during COVID, but is not the best economic manager given the spiraling debt in Victoria. But as you say, he's probably played the politics fairly carefully there. We've been hearing about it for a little while, but it's going to actually start happening. Netflix will be cracking down on password sharing in Australia from today. So the streaming giant says it will start contacting subscribers who are sharing their Netflix across multiple households. Um, But premium account holders will have the option of adding an extra member to their account for $7.99 a month. And Tom, I promise I'm not going to quickly call all of my siblings and let them know about this because apparently 100 million households are sharing accounts across the world. Yeah. I mean, they've been sort of not doing so well financially as well. So they've got to find ways of making more Mm. revenue. And I think a lot of people are surprised we've been able to share passwords as much as we have. So I'm kind of not surprised they're finally cracking down on this. I guess it'll be interesting to see if there's a, a difference in the way the different streaming services work this space. Do they have a really tight number and then try and get more revenue out of sharing or do they give people a bit more leniency? Um, I think they're all thinking about the way they do business as this market sort of matures and it gets harder and harder to make money because they saw such a massive spike in revenue during the pandemic. In terms of password crackdowns, the other streamers are yet to follow suit, but they're no doubt watching on um, to see how this will play out and how it will affect their business. All right, coming up, Jan Fran talks to Rihanna Patrick about Stan Grant and the challenges of being an Indigenous journalist. Hi, it's Jan. When Indigenous journalist Stan Grant announced that he was leaving the ABC, his announcement struck a particular chord with our very own Rihanna Patrick. She has got quite a story of her own to tell about her time as a journalist at the ABC and why what Stan wrote and what he said really hit home for her. Rihanna, I want to start by saying, Rihanna, welcome to The Briefing, but we don't need to welcome you to The Briefing. You've been here at The Briefing for uh, quite some time now. But talk us through your career before The Briefing, your career at the ABC where you were there for almost two decades. I was. I started there as a news and current affairs cadet and then kind of worked in a lot of different areas across the ABC. I worked in television for a little bit, but most of my career towards the end was on national radio programming. uh, And I presented the National Indigenous Program Speaking Out 
for a while. And then when I finished, I had my own program named after me, uh, again, a national program. And that's where I spent a lot of my time was actually in national radio programming. So I got to do a lot of different things while I was there and live the dream that I'd had since I was about six of working at the ABC. Why did you want to work at the ABC? Aside from obviously dreaming of it from when you were six years old, what actually made you want to work there as an adult? I grew up in a very remote part of Cape York in a mining town at that point, which was a very small mining town. And the only channel we had was the ABC back in the day. That's changed now, but I grew up on just really only having ABC TV. And I think that really influenced me from an early age. And I knew really early on that I wanted to be a journalist. And I've never known where that's really come from, although I suspect it did have something to do with Doctor Who and the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker's companion, Sarah Jane Smith, who was a journalist. So there was maybe something in my kid brain that thought that perhaps if I became a journalist, I would get a chance to be in the TARDIS. But it was also a time when I was growing up and I didn't see a lot of people like me on the television either. And I would see relatives talking about issues in the Torres Strait on the ABC. I would see that and I would see my uncle regularly on ABC TV news, but I never saw myself. And so as I got older, I realized that having a voice and being in that space was important. And it continued to just grow in me while I was in high school that this was definitely something I wanted to do. Well, it was a part of your life for, you know, a very significant portion of it. And as you say, something that you grew up wanting to do and a place that you worked in on a number of different levels. But in 2020, you decided to leave the ABC. So tell us why. Yeah. So at the time in 2020, in June of 2020, Black Lives Matter was massive. It was worldwide movement. And there was something in that, that triggered something inside of me that I had never experienced. And I was really starting to struggle with the amount of coverage of Black Lives Matter, understanding how important it was to speak out about Black deaths, particularly in custody, but also how that related to us here in Australia. And it got to the point where it was too much. I was starting to feel incredibly anxious before I went on air. I couldn't sleep when I was at home. And I suddenly started to realise that I was being incredibly affected by this. I didn't know where it came from. Trauma is not something that runs in my family. I had no basis for understanding where that came from. And so I decided to step away and take three months leave without pay. And it was during this time off in the first couple of weeks of not being at the ABC and the first break that I'd really had in, as you say, nearly two decades that I'd been there, that all of my workplace trauma started to come to the surface. And I had to deal with that. And I've been dealing with that since I left the ABC. And it made me realise that there was a lot that I had buried, that I had pushed down, that I had tried to forget in order to do my job of the things that I had put up with in my workplace, the things that I had had to let slide in order to get my job done as an Indigenous staffer. And so that really for me showed that I couldn't come back. And so I knew very early on in taking that time out for a completely different issue that I couldn't go back. And so I didn't. I resigned and I walked away from my national radio program and walked away from the one job that I thought that I would be in um, till my end of days. When you talk about workplace trauma, 
and that coming up for you or being triggered by the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. What sort of things are we talking about? I guess it's those comments that you hear other staffers making, the microaggressions that you deal with, the way that what you do is never really valued because it's just an expectation that, particularly if you're on an Indigenous program, that being an Indigenous person means that you're not really bringing a skill to that area. And then when you're on a non-Indigenous program that does a lot of non-Indigenous content, you're still not seen as bringing any value to that. And so I guess it's also really hard when you're not an Indigenous person to explain that workplace culture that you sometimes find yourself in, the way that people talk around you when they're talking about Indigenous issues as though you don't exist. And having to sit there and listen to that, I guess, for a really long time, I hadn't realised how much of an impact that it had on me. And I'm a very proud Torres Strait Islander and I hadn't realised how much of myself I'd lost where I didn't feel safe necessarily wearing my flag earrings to work for NAIDOC week or where I didn't feel as though people really understood what it was like to be me in that office and to deal with the things that I was dealing with. It's incredibly hard too when you're a journalist and you're watching other journalists report on Indigenous issues that directly or indirectly affect you because they're affecting your community. So there's no there's no way for you to switch off as an Indigenous journalist because ultimately you're there for your community. You're there to be a voice for people who might not have a voice. And it makes it very hard because mm. you feel this responsibility to do that work in the best way that you can possibly do that work and to do it in a really safe way for those that you are asking to share their stories. So it can be a surreal thing to be sitting back and watching others report on your community, but also not understanding the nuances of what they're reporting on. So that over mm. time, I think, builds. And I think everything that you you have to push down in order to do your job well and to do your job properly. I don't think they realise that there are these other challenges that you're dealing with on a constant daily, sometimes hourly basis in order to do the best job that you can and to do the job that you're getting paid to do. So Stan Grant um, has stepped away from his role at Q&A and I think from the media more broadly. He announced it in, in an opinion piece that he wrote for the ABC and then talked a little bit about it at the end of his last Q&A episode, which aired on Monday. A lot of what he said resonated with you. What did you make of him leaving? What ran through your mind when you heard that story? When I initially read the article on that Friday, the thing that stood out for me was where he talked about a lack of support from the workplace that he was in the lack of anyone publicly making a statement on his behalf to either support him publicly or to refute some of the claims that had been made about him in other media publications. So that immediately stood out for me because I understood what that meant and I felt like I had an, a very good understanding knowing of why I walked away in the first place. I also thought that in his final address on Q&A, there was, again, that thing that stood out for me where he talked about that he was not walking away because of racism and how we endure that every day. He wasn't walking away because of social media hatred, but he was walking away from the media because he felt that he was also a part of that problem. He felt like, I think he called it the poison in the bloodstream. And he was asking himself, how can we do journalism better? And can we do journalism better? That got me thinking about a lot of other things of the ways that I've come to journalism and the things that I've thought about over the years. 
and how we really, as an industry, there's this unspoken rule when you're a young journo and you kind of learn it that you don't call out the work of other journalists. It's kind of a no-no. But if we don't call out our own industry and make it accountable, how do we change? How do we maintain a standard of journalism that is acceptable? He's really highlighted a lot of what I've been thinking about. And what I've been thinking about is why as an Indigenous person do I do journalism in the way that I do it, in the way that I've been trained, not only Mm. at university, but the way that I've also been trained in the workplace. And I've started to realise that I don't want to do journalism in that way. I don't want to add to what is already out there. I want to give a different perspective, but I want to do it in a way that innately is me as a Torres Strait Islander and how I would tell that story. So I completely understood that because I think it's something I grapple with a lot. I also could relate to him because he talked about that first day of school for him and he had a photo in the article that he talked about of feeling sort of uncomfortable and out of place. And I, again, could completely understand that feeling. I've never felt like I've belonged in journalism. I've never felt that. And part of me doesn't actually want to. I want to belong with my Indigenous cohorts in this space. I want to belong in Indigenous media. And Indigenous media is where I feel like I'm at home and where I do belong. And I understand that feeling of not belonging because there is nothing I feel that has ever spoken to me as an Indigenous journalist that makes me feel welcome in that space or makes me feel as though I am a part of those industry groups or of that journalism union you should be a part of or those other parts of the wider industry. So I really understood what he meant about are we also a part of the problem and do we need to look at how we do our work? And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, and I think it's a question that journalists are, and if they're not, they definitely should be asking themselves. Because I was struck by something that you said about your time at the ABC. You suddenly realised how much of yourself you had either been suppressing or that you had lost by working in an organisation like that for so many years. Do you feel like uh, a next step for you might be to reclaim that person or to find that person again, not to be trite, but to to sort of do the opposite of what you felt you were doing at the ABC? Oh, I've definitely refound myself. That was not an issue. When I was having a lot of that early trauma, I, I went back to my old people and I went back to my uncle and I had a lot of conversations with him about that. And for me, I I realised that I, it was not going to be fixed by going to talk to a non-Indigenous counsellor. If I couldn't find an Indigenous counsellor, it wasn't going to happen, who could understand my trauma, who could understand that, yes, in journalism, you can get trauma on the job for the story that you're doing, but you also have this other layer, which is the Indigenous trauma that I didn't realise I was carrying. Again, I don't know where that comes from. It's not a history that I have in my family. And so you've got that on top of that. And then you've got that trauma that you deal in the workplace. So I really didn't want to have that conversation with a non-Indigenous person. So I just decided I was going to go back to my old people and I went back to my uncle and I just had conversations because I realised that I had to ground myself back in culture. I had to ground myself in who I was and where my bloodline is tied to. And that has really helped because it actually makes you realise that none of this matters. (laughs) It makes you realise that you are stronger in self when you are strong in who you are and you know who you are. I did it in a very different way than I think I would have done it previous and I knew that I had to do it that way and there was something in me that said, that's the way you've got to do it, kid, because you're not going to get over this any other way and 
it was definitely the right thing to do. That was Rihanna Patrick, who you'd know is one of the voices on the briefing, of course, here to talk about her time on the ABC and some of the takeaways from what Stan Grant said, particularly in his final episode of Q&A and particularly around how journalism can do things better in order to accommodate Indigenous journos and journos of colour, but also to report on Indigenous Australians and Australians of colour as well. Listener.